0: He was three years old the first time his father told him they had to get rid of his mother. Three years old? How did he understand this? What did he think about this? We will find out in just a moment. Hello everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest is David Crow. When looking at the life he lives now, a successful lobbyist living just outside of Washington DC with his wife, it's hard to imagine what he went through as a youngster. David Crow, welcome to Mind
1: Talk. Thank you, Dr. Brewer.
0: David, you heard me uh, describe what is essentially the opening of a book that you have written entitled The Pale Faced Lie by none other than David Crow. Three years old, and your father was talking to you about how to get rid of your mother. I mean, three years old, most three-year-olds, three-year-olds aren't having those kinds of conversations. What did you understand of what your father was saying?
1: Well, I was almost four, but I mean, you're, you're right. My first memory, um, th- my father made a very big deal about he and I going for a drive, which was to be a recurring pattern in my life. That's when all of the criminal instructions and you know, the stories about prison began. So I'm just a couple months before four years old, three three years and about eight months, nine months. And it's in the dead of winter. And where we lived at Navajo Station, it was completely frozen. This is up around 7,000 feet. And my dad said, get in the car. We're going drive to drive out in the desert. And he would slam on the brakes and spin the car. And he thought this was great fun and and I bounced all over the car, and I was afraid to let him know that it scared me. I mean, it was fun to slide around, but I would hit the window, the glove box, to bounce up and down. And he turned to me in the most stern voice possible, said, David, I have something to tell you, and you have to remember this, and you have to keep it a secret. We have to get rid of your mother. And it just stunned my senses. And I guess from that moment on, I understood what kind of father I had.
0: And when you say Navajo Station, where was that located?
1: So Navajo Station is on the Navajo Indian Reservation. Uh, It's about 12 miles from Ganado, uh, probably 30 miles from Window Rock, which is the Navajo Nation headquarters. Okay. At the time, Dad was working for El Paso Natural Gas Company, and the employees lived in enclosed barbed wire compounds on the reservation the families working uh to handle maintain the turbines and maintain them to push gas uh the pipeline started in houston and went all the way to los angeles and we always worked on and around the navajo indian reservation
0: so uh, you were living certainly in physically uncomfortable conditions Your dad was behaving in ways that were clearly unnerving. I'm just curious, at three, almost four years old, did you understand that your father was saying that he wanted to Lose your mother, kill your mother, do harm to your mother. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to understand how this three, almost four-year-old, really understand and understood get rid of your mother.
1: Well, and you're asking a very good question. The answer to this is that my father was always a very melodramatic guy, and what he basically did was make this pronouncement as if this was something I needed to remember for the rest of my life, that he had something so profoundly important to tell me that only he and I would be in our secret world, which is what he did with me. And when he turned and looked at me, um, I mean, he set the whole morning up and even the day before. Tomorrow we go for a ride. Tomorrow we have our first big talk. Tomorrow I have to tell you something very, very important. And when he said, get rid of, I looked up at him, scared, and he said, well, you can't grow up with her. You'll turn out crazy just like she is. We have to get rid of her, the whole family. We have to be rid of her. So I don't know what a kid that age knows about murder. Um, I like to think I'm normal, and it never occurred to me that you would do anything to anybody. But he made it really clear she would no longer be around. But he also made it clear that he would make it it would be a physical act if he needed to he wasn't just gonna go see a lawyer and you know have a an agreement he was gonna get rid of her and it and it stunned me and of course if you go through the remainder of the book that was really his modus operandi for everything uh violence was the answer to almost any question you could ask
0: and not only violence but from what i saw he frequently talked about actually killing people beating them to a pulp, killing them, and then wanted to engage you in his activities in whatever way he could. That's an astounding life for anybody, but certainly for a child.
1: Yeah, I think the one thing I learned about dad throughout my life, and if you start from the beginning to the end of the book, and we're not going to give anything away, of course, um, dad was all about using an accomplice to go kill someone and involving the accomplice, using the accomplice to mask his own activities, but getting the accomplice into the same exact trouble he got in, you know, with, with murder and he tried to do the same thing with me. And he would, from that first conversation on, he would say, I'm going to need to let you know when I tell you, we have to get rid of your mother, be ready. And that was always the, the telltale sign, be ready to do what I ask you to do.
0: So really living a life of anxiety, of uncertainty, of fear. And at the same time, this was your dad.
1: Yes. And <clears throat> coupled with a very mentally ill mother who was very, very needy, um, who wanted me to be the head of the house by the time I was 10. you know, she she tried to become the child. And so between the two of them, They both tried to own me and control me in different ways, and I never felt free for even one minute um, growing up, and I doubt my siblings did either.
0: I was about to ask you about your siblings. Tell us how many you had and what their relationships were like with your parents.
1: Well, we all struggled with them in equally difficult ways. One of my agreements with my siblings, because this is not an easy story, to tell or to read. I mean, it's got a happy ending. Um, but I'm proud of my siblings, love my siblings, but they don't want to be a part of this book. And uh-huh. they've asked me to leave them out. And so I can say with clarity, they all faced extreme danger. They all faced the violence of my dad and the mental illness of my mom. <clears throat> and they all handled it in their own way. None of us. We're very close and not terribly close now. Um, dad divided and conquered us, and our mother did too. And I think each one of us felt like a prisoner in the family to the point where we're just trying to survive on our own. We never really found a way to bind all four of us together. It just um, just never happened.
0: And, you know, as one goes through the pale face lie, it becomes more and more clear that being close to someone, uh, relying on someone, depending on someone, even your siblings, that kind of wasn't the safest way to go in your life.
1: That's right. My dad was a master criminal. I mean, he was a brilliant, brilliant man. And he knew how to use one child against the other. And he had uh, different secrets for different kids. Um, and he would single us out and tell him, tell us the rest of the kids were no damn good, as he would put it. You know, they're no good. Uh, you're the only one. And so we all were kind of co conspirators with him, but not with each other. So, I mean, we, we didn't plot to hurt each other, but we often plotted to keep each other excluded from really dangerous or bad information. And, um, I suppose all sort of psychopaths do this. Yes. Very, very manipulative guy and very, very good at uh, bringing you into the fold, but you're the only one important to him. Therefore, you should do whatever you wanted.
0: David, bear with me one second. I think that was on, on my end. I'm so sorry about that. Don't um, no worry. Let me – I'm just going to ask you another question that I'm going to ask you. Dr. Brewer? Yes, I'm here. I'm, I'm waiting for uh, the machine in another uh, office to turn itself off. Would
1: if, if I turned the car off and called you back in one second, could, could I do that?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Okay, I thought you that.
0: Okay. I thought you turned that off, Jim. Obviously, not. David?
1: Yes. Okay, terrific.
0: You. I'm going to ask you one question that I'm going to ask you to answer relatively quickly because we do need to go to a break after you complete your response. Are we you ready? Okay. got a deal. Okay. Uh, yeah. David, your father was once deemed by a psychiatrist when he was in San Quentin prison as having one of the highest IQs he had ever seen just for me as a clinician reading that and 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 just sort of having read you know your story up until that point it was really unnerving for me because i understood what that meant that's really frightening to have someone who is so smart so clever and so damaged and so damaging as a dad
1: exactly one thing he used to brag about there's nothing easier to trick than a well-educated liberal. He laughed about how easy it was to con the warden, the chief psychiatrist, chief physician. He thought it was child's play.
0: And it seems like for him it was. I mean, he certainly conned the psychiatrist.
1: Oh, yeah. He could tell you anything you wanted to hear in exactly the way you wanted to hear it. Uh, What I would say is he could fake sincerity better than any person I ever knew. And even he used to say, Ninety nine percent of these guys are idiots and they get caught easily and they get you know, they come back to prison over and over. But you get a brilliant con who likes to do things like murder and he'd say 60 percent of all the murders are unsolved. And the reason is the convicts that are really good at this stuff. No one will ever catch them because a murder, uh, a perfect murder leaves no witness. And he used to tell me that and role play scenarios for me where if we killed a guy on the side of the road, we'd be driving along. So if we killed that guy, where would we put him? Where's the nearest police station? Uh, tell me the last three license plates of cars that passed both directions. How many people in the car? Uh, he And he would make me role play these things to the point where I could answer it and think it as well as he
0: an important part of your story i think important in terms of understanding what your life was like uh was your dad's uh devotion to the fact of his life and your lives as being cherokee indians and in fact when you were having some difficulties in school Uh, with your hearing and your vision, your father pronounced that Cherokees had perfect hearing and vision and essentially ignored the recommendations.
1: Right. His, what he basically was saying is I was a defective Cherokee and it was my fault. And that, in fact, when they diagnosed me as dyslexic, which is kind of the least of my worries with my hearing and my vision, but it, 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 it is a problem. It's still one, you know, uh, he would he looked at me and he said, I can read. I can read from left to right or right to left, upside down, backwards. I have reverse dyslexia. Don't give me this crap. I could read at four what's wrong with you. You're defective. You know, the, something in the genetic code of perfect Cherokee uh heritage, you failed it. And it's your fault. And I grew up believing that.
0: And, you know, just to speak for a moment to the power that parents' actions and words and the lack of words have on a child cannot be underscored enough. So on the one hand, you know, you were your dad's sort of cohort in crime, and on the other hand, he used to tell you that you were just stupid and that's just all there was to it.
1: Exactly. So I was either the smartest or dumbest person in the world, and at school, I was always dumbest. I could never do anything on time. Uh, you know, didn't, didn't get to testing quick enough, never could complete a test in an hour. I could read well, but I read very slowly. Um, and there I was an idiot. But if I got out with him where we were stealing tools or talking about murder scenarios and I could keep up with him, then I was a genius. Uh, it an odd dichotomy. But, of course, in a normal person's world, and I'd like to think I am, uh, it was struggling through school and not being able to keep up with my classmates, not being able to do assignments quick enough, and to misunderstand things. You know, the whole verbal problem with being dyslexic, as we both know, is your brain doesn't process information in the same way. And most testing and almost everything we do in life is based on everybody having a standard set of senses and if you're dyslexic like you know I am, you, you learn to memorize, you learn to compensate. Mm-hmm. But you're never doing it as fast as others or in the same way. And until I became an adult was able to use time and thinking and all of the different, you know, things that you gather with your your experience, I was way behind all the time I always felt I was stupid. When I got home, Dad would throw down an IQ test, time me when I couldn't do them in time, he said, well, you're an idiot. And so, yeah, I just never and, – And but there was no help for it. I mean, I never got counseling or you – know, there was a brief period in Albuquerque where the teachers analyzed me and said, this kid's dyslexic. We can help him. And then we moved right after that and was never brought up again.
0: Just ex- and extraordinary. I and, mean, of course, the other piece is, you know, so many parents like to see their children as the perfect people they aren't and could never be. So for your dad, of all people, right. that you were dyslexic, that he clearly just wasn't having that. I I, I want to jump ahead a little bit. Tell us about the Crow Craziness Index.
1: Well, <clears throat> part part of my personality and part of what got me through life is, when on the reservation, most of the places we lived were very, very isolated. And you had to use what two two, two things at my disposal, my imagination, uh, and my. I read every single thing, no matter how long it took. I was a prolific reader from the first, you know, second, third grade. I read everything I could get my hands on, flashlight at night. But during the day, I was a paper boy, and I was out and about around – the Indian village we lived in. And I became a paper boy. And what I found is a lot of the people living on reservations are absolutely crazy. And I don't mean the Indians. I mean, the people, the Anglos that come to serve people on a reservation. And so we had missionaries who were very, very odd. We had socially inept people that couldn't make it anywhere else. We had paranoid people. And so my paper route customers had varying degrees of insanity. I had One guy in particular who lived in a trailer a mile away from everybody else in this isolated village of Fort Defiance put newspapers up all around his windows, wouldn't let me give the uh, Navajo Times his address because LBJ was out to kill him. He buried ammunition everywhere. He had guns and ammo magazines stacked on his deck. He wore a flak jacket, uh, guns all over his truck. And I would come and say, did anybody see you coming? And I would say, oh, yeah, the 3rd Calvary's coming. They're after you. LBJ's hunting you down. He's going to kill you. Uh, Didn't I tell you that? Oh, yeah, Johnson's coming personally for you. And he'd say, well, he's going to fight to the – I'll fight him to the death. And, you know, so I would score my customers based on how crazy they were. And I had a 1 to 5 scale. This guy clearly was a 5. I
0: see. I'm not going to ask you about the ones because I think they might have been a little scary, too. You know, as as we're talking, uh, they, to, were, they, they
1: were all kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> they I, were all crazy. You could feel, a, you know, they were all one flew over the cuckoo's nest crazy.
0: Gotcha. Well, you know, I mean, your whole life was just filled with so much chaos and madness that, I mean, you found a way to sort of make a joke out of it. Um Maybe maybe not the funniest joke in the world, but but still, I mean, it's it's so understandable that you would have to resort to something to get through a day, to get through a week, just to get through your life. But let let me ask you this: I mean, as we talk today, you, your dad. Let me back up a bit. Your dad talked you, if nothing else, to buck authority. Uh, to be quite dismissive of sort of the common everyday man, and, and to really not pay attention to the rules. And yet here you are today uh, in a field that is, I would say, how would you describe the field of lobbying? You are a lobbyist. How would you characterize that kind of work? Certainly not what your dad well, taught you. A,
1: absolutely. A good lobbyist has to work with both parties without any partisanship and has to find a way to get policy legislation through all of Congress. And so one of the things growing up the Navajo Indians taught me, because I always felt very different, not only with my disabilities, but different from them, is that once they accepted me as one of them, the name Crow in Navajo is Gagi. And once they started calling me Gagi, I was one of them. And I had learned to adapt. So in the lobbying world you have to understand all of the rules all of the relationships and a very complex three-dimensional chess game web of rules my dad's intelligence and training helped me with that but there's another piece i i am i believe in the rule of law i believe in doing the right thing i believe in being honest with people i treat people the way i want to be treated Uh, in my lobbying firm of nearly 30 years i've had almost 250 interns, college kids that I've sent on their way to uh, a better job or a graduate school or law school, and I've tried to live my life the opposite of my dad, use his intelligence, but not for the dark side, but for the good side. And yeah, that was a long, slow process, and Dr. Brewer, one of the first things you learn is if you want to be around good people and you want good people to like you and befriend you and trust you, you better be good people too. Um, Dad sought the worst in people, and I tried to seek the best. And I would say he taught me by example not to be like him. The last thing I wanted to do was end up like him.
0: And, you know, what's interesting um, as one reads the pale-faced lie is that your, your dad actually taught you, actively taught you the reverse of how you live your life today and really how you wanted to live your life then. Um, so it's, it's yeah. really sort of a fascinating look at the individuality of an individual, even as a child. Uh, there can still be a part of you that's different from the world around you that you can latch on and hold on to and grow with. Yeah. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Part of the proceeds of the pale-faced lie are going to go to a women's shelter in Albuquerque. Why is that?
1: Well, I thank you for asking that question. There was a period when I was 10 years old. My father put my mom in a mental institution, They their psychiatric evaluation. He thought that he'd never have to come back for her obviously she came back and he had to pay for it then he decided that the only way to get rid of her was to just flat move while she wasn't home and what he did and I don't want to give away my book but he cut her brake linings and he assumed she wouldn't know that and and where we lived at the time Gallup had very steep hills and he assumed that she'd hit her brakes it wouldn't work and she'd be killed well his fate had it thank god she was so afraid to drive down those hills she drove all the way around town at 10 miles an hour something no one else would do she tapped her brakes uh they failed she went to a gas station the guy fixed her brakes for free and told her somebody's trying to kill her so to make this story complete she drove to albuquerque new mexico where she remembered a person's name a man named tom collins who she knew was a philanthropist she knew he was he was a, a, a person who was going to help her. She was homeless. She was sleeping in her car. She finally connects with him. He got her a room. He got her clothing. He got her food. He got her a waitress truck, uh, truck shop job. He got her legal help. He saved her life. So one of my missions was to, is to find homeless shelter that I wish was available for my mom. It wasn't then. And to support it. Uh, Send it money, publicize it. It's the Barrett House in Albuquerque. Uh, One of the things I would tell my reader is that homeless women have a variety of problems, and often it's a brutal husband who's trying to kill them or hurt them. Uh, They generally don't have the job skills that they're going to need. Oftentimes they don't even have their birth certificates, driver's license, anything. Uh, These women need a tremendous amount of help, and often they're with their children, and those children need help. The Barrett House takes care of people. Their goal is to get them in, get them to their feet, and back out to society. I can't think of a higher calling, and I do this in honor of my mom.
0: I could not agree with you more that so many of these women are without any resources whatsoever and without the internal awareness that they deserve the help that ultimately you're trying to ensure is available to them. David, how does one get information about you, the work you're doing, and about The Pale-Faced
1: Lie? Thank you for asking, Dr. Brewer. You can go to davidcrowauthor.com, and there's a variety of things. But I would ask my reader, after you look at The Pale-Faced Lie and take a look at what it's about, shift over and look at the Barrett House and look at the kind of work it does, and uh, at com, you'll find all of the things I've been doing, how I've been promoting the book, and, and how I've been trying to promote the shelter.
0: David, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. There is so much more to your story than we've even been able to begin to touch upon, uh, but that you have come out on the other side uh, and are doing so much important good work. Um, I I, I thank you and and I honor you for all the work that you're doing.
1: And I thank you for having me on, and, and I thank you for reaching out to people the way you're doing on these very important subjects that I think a lot of people in society really aren't that aware of. Certainly they're not as engaged as I wish they would be. Uh, so th- this is, I hope, a great opportunity to to put some light on something that needs it.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for your time today. And, folks, thank you for joining us on this edition of MindTalk. Mind Talk is brought to you as an educational public service that you can download on demand by going to mindtalk.org. That's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. You can go to iTunes. You can take a listen on your uh, phone. There are several uh, sites on which we are available. So if there's a... you have a favorite site, and we're not on it. Just let us know, and we'll do our best to be available to you on your favorite site. MindTalk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Productions. And, folks, if you'd like to be in touch with me directly, you can always email me. That's Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at mindtalk.org. Again, that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. You take care.